Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Groucho Marx once said, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. That's a great line. Lucky for you, there are some pretty specialized clubs out there you might be happy not to qualify as a member of. We've all heard the horror stories concerning tragical, you know, tragic deaths for, from uh, people who are trying to uh, go through the hazing process to get into sororities and fraternities. And you have to think, you know, unless they had absolutely no clue, you know, how could the benefits of belonging ever outweigh the dangers of, of qualifying for some of those? But there's some organizations people qualify for to, to be a member in without even having the desire. For example, there's the Ejection Tie Club. Uh, to qualify, you have to have used a Martin Baker ejection seat to escape an aircraft in an emergency. For every member, and there are over 6,000 members, um, you get a unique tie, a pin, a certificate, and a membership card. But their website is really interesting. It's filled with harrowing stories of people who have, uh, you know, narrowly escaped death. There's another organization. It's called the Caterpillar Club. To join this one, you have to be a military or commercial aviator whose life has been saved by having a parachute. Their motto is, life depends on a silken thread. In 1922, a young Army test pilot named Harold Harris was flying in a mock dog flight fight with a friend. His plane had been equipped with experimentally modified ailerons, uh, wing flaps that helped control the aircraft. Suddenly, his plane began to rock violently, and he couldn't control it. He had no choice but to bail out. Standing in the cockpit, he was sucked out into the slipstream. After three tries, he finally found a handle on his ripcord and pulled it. A main chute opened 500 feet over the streets of Dayton, Ohio. He became uh, the first American known to be saved by a manually operated parachute in an emergency jump from a disabled aircraft. After being interviewed by reporters, it was decided that an exclusive club should be formed. Along with their name, their member pin is a golden caterpillar, a creature who spins a cocoon and crawls out and then flies away from certain death. Here's another club most of you won't want to join, the 300 Club. Membership is reserved for those hardy souls who make the trek to the South Pole and Antarctica when the temperatures are 100 degrees below zero. Upon arriving at the research station, they warm themselves up in the 200 degree sauna there. Going from 100 below to 200 degrees above is 300. Like membership in most clubs, belonging creates a special bond. For the rest of us, there is, or there was anyway, a club in Great Britain called the Not Terribly Good Club. It was inspired by the 1979 best-selling book by Stephen Pyle, The Book of Heroic Failures. It contained a membership application for readers so they could, in turn, write stories about their own heroic, or what we would say today probably, epic failures. The application form asked, uh, for one, main areas of incompetence, two, subsidiary areas of incompetence, then three, cases of sustained chaos occasioned by any of the above. The book was so popular, it spawned 
two sequels now, and the club became so popular within months that after reaching 30,000 members, it was disbanded. The reason given? Its success meant that it had been a failure as a failure. You know, being baptized into the family of Christ isn't so much joining a club as it is being adopted into a family. And it's not exclusive. And everyone is welcome. And if we had a pin, I suppose it'd be in the shape of a cross, right? Do you have to have a narrow escape with death to qualify? Well, that's an interesting question. Qualifying actually involves and encourages a kind of dying. It's what Paul's talking about in a letter that was written to uh, pretty fresh Christians in the city of Rome who were wondering and, and struggling just exactly what their baptism meant in their lives. The what does this mean part, we would say as Lutherans. And his nearly 2,000-year-old advice is just as fresh as if he were writing to you and I today. And because scripture is the inspired word of God, I suppose he was. Well, it's, what, the 10th of the month now? Uh, this, by this morning, the wise men have come and gone. Uh, the tree's probably down, close anyway. Huh? Your decorations are put away. Jesus is sat in the temple, amazing the teachers there with his special wisdom at his tender age of 12. <clears throat> and today, as he embarks on his, his uh, ministry, at about the age of 30, according to Luke, he gets baptized. Right along the banks of the Jordan River, where his cousin John was preaching repentance and baptizing great numbers of repentant people for the forgiveness of their sins, Jesus shows up. John balked at the idea, knowing that Jesus had no need of forgiveness. On top of that, he really didn't need to be adopted into God's family because well, he was God's family, right? In fact, it was John who needed to be baptized by Jesus. But the Lord insists, knowing that in order to save us, he had to really be us. He'd come ultimately to become sin for us. So that when he was nailed to the cross on Good Friday, every one of our sins would be nailed there right along with him. Where each one would be covered and washed away by his own shed blood. Jesus is choosing in accordance with his human nature and his mission to save mankind to be baptized by John as a way to identify with us as he embarked on his own ministry. The sinless son of God put himself right next to and amid sinful men, stood in that same water that had already been muddied up by the sins of those being cleansed by John's baptism. He'd come to rescue. He'd come to save lives. And he would continue to do that all through his ministry. When Jesus arrived that day, he was a relatively unknown carpenter's son from Nazareth. But when he stood up and when he stepped up from that water, he was so much more. He was assuming his ministry office as prophet, priest, and king. As our prophet, he would bring us God's word. He would teach us about God. He would actually be God's word to us in the flesh. Our great high, as our great high priest, he wouldn't offer sacrifices in the temple, but he would actually become the once and for all time sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. When he died on that cross, offering up his life, really in exchange for ours. Shortly after his baptism, John would point him out to people, calling him the Lamb of God, a reference to his coming sacrifice. Even today, as our great high priest in heaven, he intercedes for us before God the Father. And finally, he would function as king over all, 
a fact that would become increasingly obvious as he ministered and performed miracles over the next three and a half years. After his death and his burial, he would rise from the grave on Easter morning, and after 40 days showing himself alive again to people, he would ascend back into heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he continues to rule over his church until the day comes for him to return as judge, we would call Judgment Day, and make all things right. Who there that day watching, besides John, could have ever guessed who this man was and what this young man would do? Well, as it turned out, I think everyone, because when Jesus stepped out of the water, all heaven breaks loose. Once he given himself over to the work as Redeemer, heaven acknowledged him and accepted him for that work. In fact, the heavens opened and we discover that God the Father himself is present when he says aloud, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I think everybody there that day heard it. And they saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. You know, people ask, well, why a dove? Doesn't really say. Luther guessed it was because, <clears throat> he says, of the Spirit's friendliness, because it was done without wrath and bitterness, the Spirit desiring to show that he had no anger toward us, but is ready to help us become godly and to be saved. Think about it. What kind of creature did Noah send out after, uh, you know, being awash in the, in the floodwaters for about a year? The one that he sent out that came back with a freshly plucked olive leaf. It was a dove. The olive leaf showed him that the floodwaters were finally beginning to recede. And it was a symbol of hope. Also a symbol of peace with God. Or between man and God. This whole baptism snapshot in the Gospels is a beautiful portrait of our Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit there. All in the same place at the same time. That same spirit is bestowed on us in our own baptisms, whether we're carried away from the baptismal font as infants or walk away as adults or children, as Brody did this morning. Um, we're embarking on our new lives as forgiven children of God, washed clean and equipped to witness that saving faith to the world in everything we say and everything we do. It also anchors us to God. Forever, we're forever connected to him by our baptisms, not made perfect, not without our faults or without our failings. We still live in the middle of a battlefield where good and evil are firing volleys at each other all day long. But as one of the good guys, Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil will be our ultimate victory. Even victory over death and the grave. That's why Luther urges us to remember our baptisms daily. Every morning, he says, to remind ourselves we're children of God and still connected to him, even when we don't act very much like it. Connected by that anchor of our baptism. It also means that the Spirit is always at work in our hearts, trying to reel us back in every time we begin to wander. And it all happened in just a moment, just like it did this morning. But then what? What happens after the water is dried? That's what Paul talks about this morning. He's explaining to a pretty new Christian congregation in Rome just what their baptism into the faith means in their daily living. That it's more than just a moment of time. It's a rebirth, really, to a whole new life. Forgiveness happens at baptism. It's, it's a sacrament, but there's more. We're also transformed and connected forever unless we choose to cut our ties to Jesus Christ, even to his death and his resurrection. 
We were buried, therefore, with him, Paul says, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So how can we be dead but still alive? How can we be drowned in the waters of baptism but still be breathing? Good questions. How can we be buried and yet raised? People should know the answer to these. Uh, ancient believers and modern believers alike. Paul was looking at how people were living even after being baptized into Christ. Now you'd think that after coming to faith, um, being baptized, your life would take a for, on a forever turn for the better, right? Uh, people do. They imagine that finally a few of the lottery numbers are going to be their numbers, or when it rains, the raindrops will fall all around them, but maybe not on them. They'll, they'll think that they'll stay healthy and happy, and that evil will never touch them ever again. People have been told they would be transformed. And that part was true. But uh, baptism does transform you. It transforms the, the inner man, the inner woman, that spiritual person inside you. The, the problem is, in this life anyway, the flesh and blood outer man or woman will still be bombarded with those same temptations and troubles of life that it was before. The world will still be slinging its mud at you, and the inner man, that inner man's going to struggle. You know, if you're brought to faith as an infant, you're still going to face a lifelong struggle with your sinful nature, the one you inherited. You know, thanks mom and dad, right? But it wasn't really their fault. We all start out with one. If you came to faith as an adult, chances are by the time you got your new self, your old self had developed patterns of behavior that were not only dumb and dangerous, but spiritually speaking, they could even doom you or die trying. Paul understands that even believers get stuck in these dangerous, depressing patterns. And he wants us to break free of anything that can hurt or destroy us because he knows we can do better. And so he's asking the question this morning, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Boy, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? It really is. How is it possible for us to persist in sinful behavior now that we're baptized followers of Jesus, now that we're transformed? For a fallen people living in a fallen world, it's not hard at all to fall, is it? It seems like even before we realize it, we've stepped in it. We don't have to go looking for sin, do we? No, sin's, sin's pretty good at uh, finding us. Paul's saying that it doesn't make sense, though, for us to go on sinning, since our old sinful life, along with our own sinful nature, our old sinful inner man, the old man, the old Adam, uh, Luther calls it, uh, is now dead. Our resurrection, our new life has begun. But even though it doesn't make sense, we still go on sinning. The outer us doesn't always reflect that new inner us. We're free to, with our, with our uh, uh, free will. To, to override and overrule that new inner person we've become. The one raised to new life in Christ who's probably screaming at us to turn around and walk away from evil. We're free to plow ahead in our fixation on things we have no business fixating on. To persist in traveling in dangerous directions that can lead us to even deeper, more serious sinfulness. Even Paul struggled. He once called himself the chief of sinners. He was God's man. God chose him. He's the greatest evangelist ever, probably. Most of the New Testament was written, is composed of letters Paul wrote to new churches that he himself planted. 
called himself the chief of sinners. That means he faced the same struggles. He's going to write in the very next chapter, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You know, here, who here today you know, can't relate to that? What he's saying is that even though we may feel far from transformed, though, the truth of it is we are. And remembering that transformation can give us the power to, to live like it by tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're baptized children of God. And baptism, God publicly, officially announces us as connected to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, along with everything that comes with that. God stirred in us a faith that laid hold of the baptismal promise that says, my sinful self died with Christ on the cross. My broken, dying, condemned flesh was buried with him in a tomb, and I rose with him on Easter morning whole, righteous, eternal, free, and unconditionally loved. Unconditionally. Never to die again. I've been transformed. That's your reality. Regardless how you might feel today, regardless of how down on yourself you might be for falling short so continually, or maybe you're struggling with something you just can't seem to get past. That's your reality. You've been transformed. It's the new reality. In verse 11, Paul gives his first imperative in this letter to the Roman Christians. He says, you must. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the outer man or woman is still going to be subjected to sin and temptation and disease and eventually, uh, if you live long enough, even physical death, right? But the inner man, the spiritual man or woman who is connected to Christ in baptism, was at that moment also connected to his victory over death. And one day, on the last day, the day Jesus returns, even the outside man will be resurrected, he'll be transformed, and he'll be restored. Let all that baptism means help you understand who you are and whose you are. Remember your baptism daily. Every morning, remind yourself that you're a baptized child of God. Strengthened by his word, renewed by his spirit, redeemed by his son. We still don't do the right thing all the time. Maybe not even most of the time. But when we're really feeling washed up, the outer man struggling with the mud, life slings his way. That inner man seeks God's forgiveness and can rejoice, already savoring that final victory. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Continue with our next.